in all of Crohn's disease, perianal disease is the worst. It's the hardest to treat anyway, you know, either way, medically and surgically, it's, it's a mess. All right, so I'm going to run through a little bit of facts and, and things, uh, you know, just some information first. Here I have no conflict, and here are my objectives that uh, you can look at later. Uh, perianal fistulas in Crohn's disease. So the initial presentation usually is in about 5% of patients, so not a lot, small. A third have perianal surgery five years preceding their diagnosis. So what does that tell you? We're not diagnosing it, are we? And I can tell you how many times I give talks and to nurse practitioners in primary care in different places, and they aren't looking at the bottom, number one, and the patients sometimes don't even want to say anything. And then finally, when this thing keeps recurring on their bottom, they present, but nobody, sometimes they just do a simple incision and drainage. Nobody really kind of looks inside you know, to even, or even thinking about Crohn's disease. So I always tell everybody, always look at the bottom if there's any intestinal kind of issues that you're thinking about or any problems because do they have skin tags indicative of Crohn's, right? Sometimes they think those are hemorrhoids. So I think that's interesting, but a third really um, have surgery five years preceding actually being diagnosed. And what is our thing about getting diagnosed with Crohn's? The sooner the better. The sooner we get this under control, this will not continue to happen or worsen. In a lifetime, a third of patients are going to have symptoms uh, or complications. Obviously, think about it, it can lead to uh, social isolation. Uh, patients have urgency, frequency, they may have stool incontinence, skin issues, pain, soiling, sleep disruption at nighttime having to get up, sexual dysfunction. Think about that when you're having fistulas or any perianal issues. And sepsis. Obviously, it's an inflammation down there. So it is. It's frustrating for providers um, to effectively treat. Number one, antibiotics and immunal immunomodulators, there's limited efficacy. Yeah, they can help, you know, like the antibodies when there's, uh, you know, some inflammation there. We always do put them on it, uh, but it's not going to take care of the Crohn's or anything overall. Biologics are our best um, medical options. And surgery, for the surgeons, there's a high rate of recurrence for most patients. And there is that ever-present risk that maybe they're going to end up with a stoma, they're going to have incontinence, or poor wound healing in the perianal area. So the classification and diagnosis, MRI is usually the gold standard. It visualizes the anal sphincter and the pelvic floor muscles. And why is the anal sphincter important to know if the fistula intercedes and crosses through that area? What does the anal sphincter do? What's so important about that sphincter? Continence, exactly. So we need to know where that fistula track is going and detecting those tracks and if there's abscesses involved. Examination under anesthesia is usually uh, a great way to define and diag you know, to classify and diagnose the uh, fistulas and it can provide therapeutic treatment 
via an incision and drainage, we're lancing the uh, abscess or we'll place the seat on. And what that's gonna do is relieve that pressure and that purulence that's sitting there and causing the pain. And with the continued inflammation in that area that can build, can further harm and destroy the sphincter muscles as well. Endoscopic ultrasonography, uh, we're starting to hear a lot more about that and its use even in diagnosing uh, Crohn's disease in the bowel, but also down in the uh, anal area. It can identify the accuracy of whether it's in the issue anal fossa or the supralevator abscesses. It's kind of limited in that aspect. So it's better actually for looking at anovolvular uh, fistula. The MRI is better for anything that's uh, higher up. Here are your anorectal uh, spaces that are kind of important. You kind of hear, oh, they got a supralevator uh, fistula, or they have an ischial anal, or way down low is a perianal. And then you see the one that's intersphincteric between there. So these are kind of areas where we kind of describe where our fistulas are. It's definitely a multidisciplinary approach. The gastroenterologist, the colorectal surgeon, the radiologist, because we have to have their expertise in looking at uh, these exams, and obviously the nurse. Very important to talk to these patients in dealing with perhaps perianal care, if they're draining, and do they need uh, moisture barrier ointments, things like that. So the nurse is also very important in this process. What are the goals? Short term, drain the abscess. Get rid of that purulence that's there whenever possible, and that will give them relief of symptoms right off the bat. Long term, we want resolution of the drainage so that it does not continue and keep uh, this infectious uh, situation going. We'd like to close the fistula if possible. Definitely an improved quality of life. And, of course, they want to avoid a proctocolectomy and permanent ostomy when possible. But as we know, sometimes ostomy can be the best choice for severe perianal Crohn's disease. <clears throat> so here's some of the surgical treatment. As I said, the surgical drainage of the abscess. And the key here is that we need to drain these abscesses before we start them on initiating biologic treatment, right? We want to make sure that we're relieving that infectious state there in sepsis before you put them on a biologic. Fistulotomy is really for those superficial perianal uh, fistulas. Um, and what they do, and I'll show you a picture a little bit later, but they sort of just fillet the area open. They're not going deeper in where the sphincters are, but it's just more or less on the uh, superficial area. And longer healing time, because sometimes it takes a little long for that to heal when you fillet it open. But they have a somewhat high success rate if there's no track or anything going further in. It is just an abscess there in the perianal area. Now, cetons. Cetons, um, believe me, I'm seeing so many different kinds. There's one that somebody puts it in and it's just like a suture material. There's uh, another kind that I've seen that is almost like a plastic kind of hard thing. Uh, and then what we use and have used for many, many years, it really is like a rubber band. It's an elastic rubber band that you slip in through the opening. 
What it does, it uh, slips in through the opening from the anal area. You find the track to the outside and you tie it on the outside and that silastic band stays in there. It can eventually maybe be removed after treatment is started. Obviously these patients gotta be on treatment and initiated and see that it's drying up and then sometimes it can be uh, removed several months down the road uh, when we feel that the uh, medication is working and then you can uh, take it out. Cutting seton, don't see it used a lot but we do use it at our institution and I think some other places use it. It kind of depends on I think the experience of, of uh, using cetons. It sounds like it's kind of barbaric because what happens is this rubber band that you put in through this track every two weeks or three weeks we will tighten it. After we put it in, in the OR, they will go home two weeks, three weeks, whenever all swelling, everything is feeling a lot better down there. Then they'll come back in and we will tighten it, just pull it. It feels almost like if you've had braces on, that's kind of the feeling you get down there. The purpose of that is these are fistulas that are going up through the sphincter muscles and when you tighten the rubber band, it causes pressure slowly cuts through the tissue and the sphincter muscle very slowly and it heals behind and we have them come back every couple weeks to retighten and eventually it falls out on its own. So it's, it's a, we you know, give them pain medication to cover them for a short time. I know it probably sounds kind of barbaric but it does work. Uh, some patients don't want to do it but here's the, the good thing. If we put it in and a patient cannot tolerate it, it is just unbearable, then we tell them, cut it, they can pull it out themselves. It slips right out of that track. But there's very minimal incontinence because we're not cutting those sphincter muscles. It's a slow, controlled cutting through. And usually they do not have incontinence and often we can get 100% healing of those type of fistulas. And there's only one and there's not a lot of sepsis in there. A temporary diverting stoma, often an option for severe refractory complicated disease. Obviously, it's the stool flow that is just perpetuating this whole process and the stool going through. So in really more complicated cases, we divert the stool and we do other treatments there. Proctocolectomy, permanent ileostomy, obviously, you know, that is definitely for severe, uncontrolled sepsis, tissue scarring. That is your water can perineum. Here's other definitive non-resection uh, surgical repairs. In uh, active proctitis, though, most of these, 50-50 chance they're going to work. Uh, anal plugs, we rarely use that because the Crohn's is there. These plugs generally fall out. Uh, I remember we did several cases like and they fall out before you know in a couple days or they just they don't hold because there's Crohn's there. Mucosal advancement flap another uh, indication here I'm not going to go through all these because they really uh, sometimes the best way to even deal with these is giving a diverting ileostomy and then doing these procedures get the Crohn's way under control get that tissue in there under control so you could maybe do a flap or a lift procedure but they work good for mechanical type fistulas that were that occur iatrogenically if somebody's doing surgery and maybe they nick the uh, 
vagina through a DNC. We had somebody that had that occur recently. There's not really active Crohn's there. It was just a mechanical kind of thing. Then these things can really, I think, work well. I think we're really perfecting things as it goes along, but do you do a lot of these where you are? Uh, we, we do a lot of flaps and a lot of uh, lifts, but we're leaving With diverting? Stomas. Uh, we'll try them first, and if they don't yeah. work, then we'll divert them and then yeah. do it again. But we're leaning more is, towards lifts. It's now. multiple. Yeah, and I'll show you. You'll, it, it actually uh, a lift is a stitch between the sphincters, and they do a stitch in there and try to close off the fistula that way. The key is medical management as well. But we see patients come, and they've had some of them have had 13 procedures down there. I mean, these, they recur. And unfortunately, that, it just gets worse and worse sometimes. I know the stem cell implants is something that's coming here in the future, and they're starting to do some studies. And I know that we'll be use, doing some studies in the Chicago area soon with this. Um, it's been done in Europe, and I think they've had some good statistics on this. So we'll be looking forward to see that. So bottom line is combined medical and surgical treatment. Remember that. Flagyl and Cipro may improve symptoms, but overall, these agents, they may reduce fistula drainage, but they are not effective for the healing. Anti-tumor necrosis factor, like your infliximab combined with thioprins after abscess is drained. Remember, drain the infection, then we're going to start the uh, biologics. Or maybe now they may be even thinking about vetalizumab in some of these cases, too. Uh, this was just combination therapy, uh, just showing this was uh, showing how the, um, the combination of both of them is much better. Uh, the initial response, obviously, with an EUA and CETON and infliximab, 100% uh, versus infliximab alone is only 82. And the recurrence rate, time to recurrence, look, infliximab 3.6 months. With the exam and CETON and infliximab, you're getting a little longer time at 13 months. So remember, combination therapy. There's a reason why I'm telling you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's a case study. 13-year-old man with a history of ileal and rectosigmoid disease, diagnosed one year ago. He had an ileocecectomy six months ago for ileal stricturing disease. At that time, he had an MRI showing a possible tiny fluid collection around the anal area. It was small. They felt it was kind of obviously insignificant at the time. Uh, he came to us after this. Uh, he was currently on infliximab and azathioprine. He did well. But he would have perianal symptoms of discomfort, which would come and go. He was treated with ciproflagyl. That would resolve, the, the fistula would go down, it would drain, and then it would redevelop again. And this was a pattern. And this is what you see a lot of times with perianal fistulas. So recently, he again developed severe throbbing perianal pain and swelling. His job is a lot of sitting at work, so you can imagine they have difficulty sitting. So he presents to us for surgical evaluation. So what do we know? What's important? What do we know about his history? Hard stops. <laughs> Crohn's disease. And where is his Crohn's disease? Perianal, right, right. And what did he have done 
that did show and give an indication already. He had that MRI that it showed a little bit of uh, swelling there. So yes, he has rectosigmoid disease and they are recurring abscess. Remember, it's coming and going. Symptoms, what's he got? Pain, yes. Swelling. Throbbing pain. Testing, he had an MRI that showed the possible collection that we talked about. So treatments, is he already on treatments? Yep, exactly. He's on the infliximab and the antibiotics. And azathioprine, he's on, he's on it all. Quality of life, decreasing, right? Because he's having all this uh, difficulty sitting, the abscess is recurring, and these can cause issues uh, at work, and he's in meetings a lot of time of the day, so you can imagine that's just even more pressure in, down there. Here's what the abscess looked like when he presented. You can see it's there, that swelling. So what testing might be considered to evaluate the, disease, the abscess? Digital exam, right? So sometimes you can feel that fistula inside. You can feel the induration, the swelling you can obviously see. But the problem is a lot of times you can't even put a finger in. They're like, no, no, I, I can't. That's good, too painful. And, and that is a lot of the time. MRI, right? Remember, we want to delineate the tracks, see if, where the fluid collection is. And it helps to evaluate healing afterwards if you needed to do another check. But sometimes the MRI can uh, over-report in some areas too. So you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. But you really want to look where is that track going if there is one. And then we talked about the anal endosography and the exam under anesthesia. This would be where we would take this patient next. Under anesthesia, we can go in, look with a scope, actually visualize where is that track on the inside and find it. So the recent testing did show, you can see where the arrow is, where there was uh, some thickening uh, in the rectal sigmoid area on that left lateral area and with a small fluid collection in there. So in the exam under anesthesia, the fistula opening was found in the rectum on the left lateral aspect. The rectum had moderate inflammation. The wire probe was placed through the opening and followed the track to an abscess cavity within the sphincter muscles to the outside of the perineum. He performed uh, an incision and drainage to resolve that abscess that was in there. So now we looked in there, we've tracked the fistula. What, what might we do next? Is that enough? Do you think we just pull out? But we found a fistula track, right? So what, what might we do next? What would we do? Seton? So here is sort of a diagram, and it shows you where fistula tracks uh, can go. The one there that you see shows the yellow there with the abscess, and it shows the tracking coming there sort of somewhat off the dentate line there, um, and tracks out to the skin. And you can see A on here is a very superficial one. That we could probably do a fistulotomy. Remember, when that's not really near any uh, sphincters. 
B is intersphincteric. As you can see, it's going in. Transphincteric is C on the other side going across, which is the one that we're kind of looking at. And D is supra-sphincteric, goes way up high. And then you have the extra one that goes way out on the outside, but up. So you can see, these are all difficult. Some of these, when they get high and involve the sphincters, are difficult. So what surgical treatment would you recommend for this fistula? You already said, right? The seton. It doesn't damage the sphincter muscles by putting in a seton. And you, you wouldn't do a fistulotomy because it's crossing the sphincters, correct? See, I can see this is just a very superficial. They sometimes can take a little time to heal because it really is open. Sometimes the patient's got to be careful depending upon where it is. If the urine, sometimes women, when they urinate, it might get in there. I had one just recently. She's got to use a female urinal to make sure that the urine doesn't get on uh, the area. Here's, you can see, there's the rubber band uh, in place. Keeps the fistula track open so the abscess can drain. That's the whole idea, because leaving that abscess in there just damages the sphincters. Now, the one thing I'm going to say is, we don't do this, we learned, we don't do this with the cetons. You see where it's tied in a circle? What happens is those, that tie, doubled area turns inside the track, and what do you think happens? Because it's thicker, blocks the track, and it doesn't drain as well. So with a seton that's kind of put in like that, you got to tell patients, you know, see if they can feel it. We want to keep that connected area outside the body. More or less now what we do, if you look at this picture, um, you'll see where the seton has two prongs out. It's not tied in a circle. We do that with a couple ties on there, and that way the, the tag that kind of sticks out doesn't rotate through as easily. Because if that does rotate inside, it blocks the track, and then we get swelling again, right? So this is a, a seton that be, can be left in as a drain. It lets it drain uh, freely, and it's combined with medical therapy and can be removed like in a couple months after induction therapy with the infliximab or whatever we're going to put them on. Here's the seton tightening. It just shows here uh, the tightening process. And in that last picture, you'll see where it uh, falls out. And like I said, it feels just like braces on teeth for a couple days. And then usually they don't have any pain. And when that seton falls out, the tissues have already somewhat healed behind. But remember, they are on therapy as well. Diversion proctectomy, uh, we're not going to do that on this patient, right? Uh, we're going to try and manage it with the uh, seton. And the proctectomy, removal of the entire rectum and anus with a permanent stoma, we're not at that point with this patient yet. So which procedure did we recommend? Seton placement and aggressive medical management is what we're looking here. And these are some of the discussions to have with the patient. Um, obviously, always a potential risk when you consent these patients is that incontinence of stool and potential leaks. I don't see it very often once we uh, do the cetons and that. I don't see it very often at all. Here's the patient education. Warm sits bath, as warm as you can tolerate. 
uh, several times a day. It cleans the area and feels soothing. I tell them to use butterfly or anal incontinence pads because they're going to drain. So you want to try and keep that drainage away from the skin. So I have them use that so it wicks it away. Move the seton from side to side. Just make sure that that tail is out. And they may need protective skin barrier in the moisture barrier ointments as well. And then you always tell them, call if they're seeing increased swelling, pain, difficulty sitting, or if the seton falls out, give me a call. Sometimes we don't put it in right away because we see if it's kind of done its job. Maybe we don't need to or not. We kind of see what's happening with when it's in for like a drain type procedure. Often we need to. And I'm going to tell you, I had one patient that they were losing their seton every, every time we put it in. Within three weeks, the seton was coming out. I mean, these setons can stay in for quite a while. He's had six setons put in before he came to see us. And then he comes, and we're doing it. And, and then he says, well, you know, I have parties sometimes with the nurses. Yeah. And I'll show him my seton because nobody's ever seen it. And I'm like, what else is this guy doing? <laughs> I'm kind of concerned now. So anyway, in perianal Crohn's, upfront, aggressive combined medical and surgical treatment. And there's how it can really heal up. A little bit of scarring, but that's healed up fistula. And they can do well. Here's case number two. Referred for uncontrolled perianal Crohn's disease, originally noted symptoms in high school of increased stools, progressed to left lower quadrant abdominal pain and diarrhea. Colonoscopy in August was uh, notable for perianal Crohn's disease with multiple fissures, deep ulcerations in the distal rectum, as well as severe inflammation with ulceration extending up to the splenic flexure. TI was normal. He was initiated on prednisone, lyaldoflagyl. He was then started on Humira in late 2011, but no loading doses. I wasn't even sure if they were even checking uh, blood, anything, you know, drug levels or anything. He was evaluated apparently in 2013. At that time, he was noted to have uncontrolled perianal disease, multiple fistulas on MRI. More or less, this was that water can appearance. He was admitted. His albumin was noted to be 2.6. He underwent an exam under anesthesia with multiple seton placements, and several fistula were identified. So he has a complex fistular network. This tissue you see there is just from chronic long-standing drainage. It is granulation tissue, you know, an environment of wetness that just keeps growing. Uh, he was draining. He smelled when he came in, too, by the way. Was sitting there, smelled. Here's where the exam under anesthesia, they were putting all these things just to get this under control. This was still in the OR trying to clean up everything that was going on. He returns now for a follow-up visit, states that since his exam under anesthesia, he has remained on Humira, Cipro, and Flagyl. States he is feeling better with the Cetons, but has had persistent daily perineal drainage, occasional leakage, accidents of stool, has about three BMs during the day, one to two at night. He was notably despondent in the clinic when I saw him. He was sitting there, hat was down over his head, just kind of sitting. He looked terribly uncomfortable with sitting like he couldn't. Of course, I asked him, and he goes, no, I'm fine. Very poor eye contact, did not really look at you. Um, soft voice, even paused with his words. 
He, um, like I said, was very uncomfortable. I asked him if he was on any antidepressants. He was not at the time, but he had been previously. And I said, well, what happened? You know, how come you came off? Well, my doctor asked me, and I just didn't think I needed him. So his doctor didn't start him back on it. Obvious here, you know. So I had to end up and call his uh, physician, his uh, GI, and tell him, you know, went through all this, he definitely needs to be on antidepressants. Um, he works in a factory building doors, states that normally he just comes home, goes to his room after work, does not socialize at all. I could tell he was totally socially inept, depressed, uh, just not even barely responding. His dad was there, knew about all this, but nobody knew what to do. Um, there was uh, no family history, apparently, of IBD or colorectal cancer in the family. His perianal uh, discomfort, diarrhea, the skin was a mess and wet, lots of milky drainage, and as I said, he smelled and even his clothes were soaking in the uh, purulence. Of course, did an MRI. Changes in the descending colon and sigmoid colon were compatible with Crohn's disease. He had extensive perianal rectal fistulas. There was a lot of abscess collections in there into the gluteal soft tissues of the perineum, into the scrotal sac. Fistulas in there as well. Can you imagine this? Anal and anal rectal strictures and scarring all in the anal rectal area. What do you think? Where is this going? So, I had to sit with him, I probably spent an hour with this, with this boy, talking about quality of life. They don't even really think their quality of life is all that bad. You know, you sit with them and they're like, well, uh, do you have any friends? All online, all around the country, all online. But do you have any friends that you go out with, do anything? No. Uh, we talked about the chance of the fistula in this rectum healing, giving the severe proctitis. Obviously, we've got to have these discussions because there's only one way to go here, obviously. He definitely uh, needs a diversion, get the stool away from that area, and clean up the sepsis because can we do a proctocolectomy in a patient like this, remove that rectum? No? right? Because of the sepsis. It'll never heal, and it's a septic situation. So definitely the thought would be for a diversion and depression. That's why I said I called his, uh, phys his physician and got him back on uh, management. Also, the, fa the father was there. His father was the only one coming and listening to this. He wasn't very responsive either, but listened and then the father would shake his head and agree and, and all of that. So here, what would we recommend? Definitely diverting stoma, correct? Proctectomy, too septic. So here's our risk factors for proctectomy at five years. Extensive fistula abscess versus a simple, 26% versus 6% if it's simple. Severe proctitis versus none or mild, 37% versus 10, and severe proctitis and extensive fistula abscess, 46% of a proctectomy rate. What about fecal diversion? Diversion does not alter the course of the disease. 
We're taking it away, but it really doesn't do anything for healing the disease. It helps the sepsis, but overall, once they get reconnected and the stool flow goes back, what happens? Comes all right back, fistulas all start getting active. So, and that's even with biologic therapy, it's too far gone. The disease burden is too high. However, fecal diversion is useful to quiet the perineum and promote the sepsis, at least to calm down. We often use it prior to repairing an RV fistula. That's another highly bacterial uh, area where you need to close. Give patients time to realize a better quality of life with a stoma. So we look at this, a diversion, as a staging procedure because most of the time they're like, you know, I don't want to have my rectum removed. So look at the diverting stoma as a way to get them feeling better, get them a better quality of life, and get that rectum removed. So I, we asked him when he came back after all this discussion, proctectomy, we need, we need to remove the entire uh, colon pretty much in rectum and a permanent ileostomy. He didn't want that procedure. No way, didn't want it again. Just that thought of it being final. So we go to the diverting stoma, temporary step, leaves the door open to go back, and the patient doesn't have that feeling of it's a final step, like they're losing this, this rectum that's so valuable to them at this point and gives them a really good quality of life. Yeah, they, it's, you would think they would just be diving for this, but they aren't. And so it helps them understand what's a better quality of life, and they often notice with that diverting ileostomy, life is better. So he comes back six to 12 months, now what? Are we gonna take down the stoma? No, right? He's gonna end up keeping the stoma, he comes back, he says he's doing much better, quality of life is better, he's much more open to moving forward and say, after we tell him there's no way this is gonna go away if we take it down, and he ultimately comes around and he's like, yeah. So that was it. In this case, it was only the father. He wasn't really much more helpful, but you definitely have to keep them engaged, keep talking to them, following up. I really kept notes with his uh, referring doctor as well to keep him on board so that he's talking to the patient and saying the same thing. So he'd tell him what we were talking about, what our plan was, and why, so he had a good understanding. And there's the key takeaways. Cetons prevent sphincter damage by preventing recurrent abscess formation. Active proctitis reduces the chance of fistula healing, thus proctitis needs to be aggressively medically managed. Cetines can be removed eventually after induction of biologic therapy, or they can be left in long-term if drainage and proctitis persist just so that abscess doesn't come back, and we've had them in for a year or so in some of them. Perineum is re-examined regularly, that's very key and important. Fecal incontinence, worsening perianal disease. When it's at that level and there's no way back, proctectomy is discussed. And stage the proctectomy with a prior diverting ileostomy to decrease sepsis, promote wound healing, and patient acceptance of a permanent stoma. Usually comes around. They don't know what a good quality of life is until you can at least give them a sense of it with a stoma. And that's it. Questions?